Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm your host, Ted Miller, Senior Vice President of the Cancer Support Community. For more than 35 years, we have been a relentless ally for anyone affected by cancer. We help individuals manage the realities of this disruptive disease and get back to normal. You can access our free services in person at one of 175 locations online or through our helpline. You will find a team of licensed professionals providing patient navigation, financial counseling, genetic counseling, pediatric support, and more. Thanks to advances in research and several new treatments, people diagnosed with multiple, multiple myeloma are living better and longer than ever before. The disease is treatable and can be managed like any other chronic condition. Today, we're going to talk about the knowledge and tools that can help manage the physical, emotional, and practical impact of living with multiple myeloma. And we have two incredible guests who are going to help us do just that. With us today are Dr. Sikander Alawandi and Jan Miller, a licensed professional counselor. So our first guest we're going to start with is Dr. Alawandi. He is a professor of medicine in the Division of Hematology and Oncology at the Mayo Clinic, Florida, located in Jacksonville. He is also the lead for the International Cancer Center. Dr. Alawadi, well, Dr. Alawadi's career focuses include the treatment of plasma cell disorders, including multiple myeloma. His research focuses on all aspects of multiple myeloma, including diagnosis and treatment and clinical trials exploring new treatment options for multiple myeloma and other related disorders. Dr. Iwadi has a special interest in understanding the disparities in care of cancer patients and their outcomes with a special focus on patients from different racial and ethnic backgrounds. Dr. Iwadi, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Ted. Thanks for that uh, nice introduction and also look forward to our show today. Uh, that's fantastic. We're going to start off with a question. Um, you know, for our listeners who may not be familiar with this type of cancer or may have it confused with another M word, melanoma, can you start by explaining briefly what is multiple myeloma? Sure. Um, Ted, I think that's an extremely important question because uh, for patients to understand what their diagnosis is, what their disease is, is, is vital to their journey with this cancer. So as any cell in the body can develop cancer, and that cancer depends on what that cell of origin is. Similarly, multiple myeloma is a cancer of cells that live inside our bone marrow called plasma cells. Now, all of us have plasma cells in our body. It's a normal kind of cell. It has a normal job to produce certain proteins that build up our body's immune system. But in individuals who have multiple myeloma, these plasma cells become cancerous. They multiply just as cancerous cells do. And in that process, they start producing excess amount of that protein that can come to the blood, it can go to the urine and it can cause damage. And that protein is frankly the hallmark or the marker of the multiple myeloma for that patient. Now, one thing I do wanna add is 
uh, very frequently patients in this situation ask, well, then do you mean I have a blood cancer, a bone marrow cancer, or a bone cancer? So frankly, uh, multiple myeloma originates inside the bone marrow from these plasma cells. But the effect or impact of that, which is that excess protein, that does come out into our blood. And multiple myeloma can also damage the bones, but it is not a bone cancer. It is from the bone marrow, and its impact is seen in the blood in the form of excess proteins. And doctor, one more thing is that we, what we often hear is that we mentioned earlier that there have been advances in multiple myeloma, but what does it mean when you say it is treatable and can be managed like a chronic condition? Excellent. I think that is also a very appropriate statement that multiple myeloma treatment has improved tremendously over the past couple of decades. So I can tell you as a benchmark that around the year 2000, if a patient was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, their average survival was two to three years, despite all treatments. And today, while the coded uh, number is roughly around a decade, around 10-ish years of survival, but frankly, all of us who focus on myeloma, we have many a patient who are living way beyond that. In fact, my longest survivor is um, just about maybe... 32, 33 years with a diagnosis of myeloma. So when we say that it is very treatable, we have such good drugs that a, a newly diagnosed multiple myeloma patient who walks through the door, I can nearly guarantee that they will have a response to the treatment that we use. So we have a nearly 100% response um, uh, rate in the beginning. When I say response, that is not remission, because remission means that the cancer is completely gone and um, it is not detectable. That is not seen in everybody, but a response means that the uh, disease will be cut down by at least 50% or more. And so when we have such good drugs that the patients respond very well, from there on, if we can continue them on some treatment to keep the disease quiet, or the moment it starts progressing to switch the treatment and give it something else, that is where we are saying that it is more like a chronic condition. So once the patients start on treatment, majority of the patients will stay on some treatment for the rest of their life. And doctor, you, you mentioned how the changes have, what kind of the changes between 10 years ago and today about when people would walk into your office and be diagnosed with multiple myeloma. But can you just give us, let's start from the beginning from the patient perspective. Can you give us an overview of the symptoms people diagnosed with multiple myeloma tend to experience? Sure. Um, again, very important to identify those symptoms. I can say that uh, a good proportion of patients with multiple myeloma may be diagnosed just because they got a routine physical, got some labs, had lab abnormalities that led to them going to see a hematologist and workup shows myeloma. But in, in, so that's a, that's a small proportion of patients. In majority of patients, the, the myeloma will show up with certain symptoms, as you rightly pointed out. And generally, if we can imagine, if this is the disease is coming from the plasma cells progressing inside the bone marrow, so they're going to crowd up the bone marrow, these crowded bone, uh, bone marrow plasma cells could lead to the healthy cells not getting produced. Hence, the patients could have anemia or low red blood cells, which could cause fatigue and tiredness. 
It could cause a suppression of the immune system of the body, so recurrent infections. I mentioned that these plasma cells secrete proteins that come to the blood. So if somebody has a very high amount of that protein, that can affect or make the blood a little bit thick or sludgy or have difficulty with uh, uh, circulation. Also, uh, patients can, this extra protein can clog up the kidneys and cause kidney damage. Kidney damage has its own symptoms. And I did start by saying that myeloma progresses inside the bone marrow, but can secrete certain chemicals that can damage bones, or sometimes these myeloma growing cells inside the bone marrow can break through the bone. So bone lesions, fractures, bone pain, they can be seen also very frequently. If the patients have any of these symptoms, typically their doctors would offer a workup to find out um, if it is indeed myeloma or not. Doctor, you mentioned you mentioned that, and I think a lot of uh, in terms of the, what the patient information is and what people can expect. But let's step back even one, uh, make one step further back and talk about risk factors. That's a question we get from a lot of patients. So, can you explain what the risk factors may be for developing multiple myeloma? Sure. So, uh, multiple myeloma risk factors include a wide variety of factors. Some of them modifiable, some non-modifiable. So, increasing age. Average age is about 68 years, but with increasing age, a high risk. Um, uh, African-American race. Patients who are African-Americans are twice more likely to have, so the, so the multiple myeloma incidence in African-Americans is twice that of in whites. I mean, still, whites are a larger number just by sheer proportion in the population, but African-Americans are at a higher risk of getting myeloma. It is uh, a hypothesized or postulated that certain exposure to certain organic chemicals, et cetera, may be associated with myeloma, but that is not necessarily a cause of myeloma to the best of our knowledge. Um, we know, for example, veterans who've been exposed to Agent Orange have a higher risk. First responders at the time of 9-11 had a higher risk of myeloma, so certain kind of environmental exposures may be associated. And then um, patients who have a first-degree relative who have myeloma I think they should be aware of it because we know that myeloma or pre-myeloma uh, called MGUS, or monoclonopathy of undetermined significant, uh, significance, those are conditions that are frequently seen in first-degree relatives. But still, I should point out myeloma is not a hereditary disorder. It doesn't run through families typically. And doctor, we have a question. We have a couple of minutes right before we go to our first break. And so one of the issues that I'd like us to walk through is just you know, when people are diagnosed with multiple myeloma, what, and you've, you talked a little bit about their, their experience. One of the things I think we'll talk about when we come back is on biomarkers. But before we get there, um, there's one thing that you, when you talk about a diagnosis, that some patients, um, they, they, the one thing that's recommended is they find an expert, right? That they can't. But can you talk a little bit about those patients for whom travel or insurance um, that doesn't cover the, the expertise? Where would you direct those patients? Uh, in the case of, of if they were in different circumstances. And we have you know, okay, just about a minute or so to, to wrap up. I know it's a compl sure. complicated question, but. Nope. No, I think that that's a very important question. So yes, I would very strongly recommend that a patient who's diagnosed with multiple myeloma, please seek out the right resource for education, treatment, guidance, knowledge, and meeting with an expert is extremely important. Um, uh, finding uh, the expert would be to go to a large academic cancer center that focuses on myeloma. But I should also point those patients who may not have the resources, as you mentioned, to probably look at 
foundations like Leukemia Lymphoma Society, International Myeloma Working Group, because they can serve as the connection between the patient who may not have the resources and the right kind of expert. And frankly, we live in a world where telehealth is now being utilized more and more. So hopefully that is opening up avenues. Well, thank you, doctor. As we mentioned, we're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Dr. Elowati. And um, this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. And today's episode is brought to you in part by GSK and Amgen. We'll return after a short break. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community a global network of education and hope. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Ted Miller. We're here uh, to talk about multiple myeloma. Dr. Alalawi, um, I wanted to talk to you about something that we get a lot of questions about from patients, and that's about biomarker testing. So I know that a lot of people listening to this may have heard of it, but are really unclear about what that that term may mean. So I'm going to throw three very short questions at you, and uh, hopefully um, you can you can provide our, our listeners with uh, answers. The first one is let's just start with what are biomarkers. Uh, the second one is how does testing for biomarkers determine treatment options, and the third one is specific to multiple myeloma. 
have any been identified for people with this diagnosis? So Ted, this is an extremely important question because the care for multiple myeloma is uh, actually, I would say, take a step back and say the care for cancer in today's day and age is very, very biomarker driven. What biomarker is some kind of a marker that is present on the cancer cell or can give us an insight into the behavior of the cancer cell and then can help select the right kind of treatment. Biomarkers are used very frequently in solid organs like lung cancer, breast cancer, et cetera, et cetera. Unfortunately, in the setting of myeloma, we do not have very solid, dependable biomarkers to go by, although there is a lot of research that is being done around it. At the moment, there are some genetic mutations that can be picked up in the cancer cells, in the cancerous myeloma plasma cells, which can provide some guidance to the selection of treatment. For example, there is a mutation that we are aware of called translocation 1114. If that occurs, patients may be more uh, benefited by a certain family of drugs called BCL2 inhibitors. I'm just giving an example, not anything specific at the moment, but all I can say for our listeners is that just like in cancer, biomarkers in general are very important. In myeloma, there is a lot of research being put into it so that hopefully we can identify while you've got this marker, you're more likely to respond to drug X or Y or Z. We're not there yet, but hopefully soon. Well, Dr. Alabadi, um, one thing you keep, we've talked a lot about is, again, the, the advancement in treatments. But another thing that you've really devoted a clear part of your career is discussing the gaps in access and options that exist between different communities in the country. It's certainly a topic getting a lot of coverage in the healthcare debate right now. So speaking about these gaps of access, can you tell us a little bit about what what led to your interest in the area of disparities in healthcare and cancer patients and, and what you want people to know about uh, what, you, what you've discovered and how perhaps what recommendations you have to address some of those disparities? So Ted, that's a very, very interesting question to me, obviously, because I, I work a lot in this area, but frankly, I could take hours talking about this, but I'll try to summarize a little bit. So you start by asking, how did I fall into this? So I started my academic career at USC in Los Angeles. I was very different from Buffalo, New York, where I trained and very different populations, and I realized that the disease characteristics, treatment patterns were different. Got me interested, started doing some analyses out of different institutional databases, large national databases, and somehow this theme, recurring theme of racial disparities, ethnic disparities started coming out. As I started looking deeper into it, looking at a lot of different uh, large national clinical trial, publicly available or federal databases, uh, claims data, I realized that our treatment patterns are different, outcomes are different for, uh, for example, African-Americans, Hispanics, and whites, and um, the racial ethnic minorities, for example, typically get access to some of the novel drugs later. And although overall, the uh, utilization of these novel drugs, transplant, et cetera, is increasing across the board, we know that racial ethnic minorities still lag far, far behind. Another important piece that I've been interested in is the impact, the cost factor, and the out-of-pocket cost, for example, is frequently higher for racial ethnic minorities as compared to um, whites. Um, as you mentioned, uh, and, and, and one other huge uh, disparity is clinical trials. For example, while 20% of the myeloma patients are African-American, African-Americans uh, constitute less than 5% of the clinical trial population in multiple myeloma. Uh, so you can imagine that the drugs we get approved through the clinical trial process, through FDA approval, et cetera, 
well, their benefits, their side effects, their role in racial ethnic minorities is to some extent unknown. But that is where I think there is the opportunity, the gap where we need to figure out how to bridge those gaps. So I think uh, the last portion of your question again, as I said, this is something I could talk on for hours, um, but the, you asked about how could some of these gaps be overcome? So I think there has to be a very concerted effort. We are, for example, running a study to try and understand uh, the, un, the behavior, attitudes, and uh, thoughts about clinical trials for racial ethnic minorities. Because if I know where the gaps are, what the patient thinks, I should ho I'll hopefully be able to overcome them. There needs to be a concerted effort from medical uh, healthcare uh, kind of world, patient advocacy, um, uh, how uh, laws are written and how more resources are applied, pharmaceutical companies, to try and have more resources to, for example, areas that are rich in this diverse population, but are not very rich in the, are not very resource heavy. Uh, so institutions that may serve, for example, underserved populations, well, it's, we need to make an effort to open our clinical trials there and enroll into the clinical trials from those settings. We know that uh, the minority patients may have, for example, difficulty with resources to go to the appointments. You asked a question earlier, what if a patient cannot go to the expert? Well, that is where the resources need to go for patients who are in rural areas, who are racial ethnic minorities, who have that disparate access to care. Well, how, how to find resources to actually connect that patient with a myeloma expert? That would be important. Not every patient can walk through the doors of, for example, Mayo Clinic where I work. But if I can bring my thought process through education, through outreach, through community engagement to those who may not have the resources to come to our institution, well, I think that's how this gap may be uh, sort of uh, overcome. Well, Dr. First of all, we wanna thank you for putting the focus on inequities. As you know, you mentioned just one in clinical trials and winning over skeptics, uh, skeptical, a skeptical public that may be in the, making sure that our clinical tri trials accurately reflect the populations that will ultimately benefit from some of these, uh, these new treatments. I wanted to, sh to shift gears just a little bit and talk about uh, something that we hear from patients all of the time. And it is multiple myeloma, it is two different kind of kinds of, of multiple myeloma. One is called um, asymptomatic and the other is called symptomatic. Uh, in some cases, people call it smoldering versus active myeloma. And could you just uh, break down for our listeners, what's the difference between the, the two? Sure. So uh, the difference is in the extent or, uh, of the disease or the disease burden in the body. So smoldering myeloma, so I mentioned uh, in the very beginning that we have these plasma cells in our bone marrow. So in a healthy adult, about 1% to 2% of the cells in the marrow are plasma cells. If these plasma cells become diseased and start multiplying and they go more than 10% in the bone marrow, that's the definition of myeloma. But if they are between 10 and 60% and are not causing any damage to the body, that's smoldering. But on the other hand, if they are more than 60% or irrespective of the percentage, they're causing any damage to the body like those uh, kidney problems, anemia, bone lesions that we talked about in the beginning, then that's active. Smoldering myeloma in general is monitored, followed, but it has a three to 5% per year risk of converting to active. Active myeloma, on the other hand, or the symptomatic myeloma, 
must be treated because we don't want it to be causing more damage to the body. Thank you for that breakdown because it's a very specific, so many people want to know because when, when they hear about it, they say, what does it mean? Where, where am I? Especially that's where I'm starting. Can I be, if I'm asymptomatic, what does that mean? And what questions should I be, should I have for my doctor? And uh, so thank you for breaking that down so quickly. You know, we, we would love to, as you said earlier about uh, your work on clinical trials and health disparities, we could go on on this topic for a long time, but we are getting a little close to our time together. But before we go into our next break, I wanted to get your insights into how a medical, a medical team's process for making treatment recommendations and suggestions you have to help patients and their families decide which one is right for them. Sure. So, um, I, Ted, I guess the way we work um, at it is that uh, we really focus on, prior to the patient coming over to us, uh, making sure that all their records, et cetera, are received, uh, when the patient comes in for a new visit, uh, I have a good dedicated close to one hour visit with them. When I say I, any of us who, um, when a patient comes to Mayo Clinic, we do give them a good close to one hour visit face-to-face time with the doctor, because that is my opportunity to educate the patient, understand their needs, their symptoms, and try to come up with a treatment plan which meets that patient's goals and, and kind of uh, needs. At that point, uh, that day, the patient will also meet with uh, one of our nurses who specializes in myeloma, with one of our uh, mid-levels or one or two of our nurse practitioners who focus on multiple myeloma, and if possible, also a social worker. Um, At that point, that treatment plan is made, and if that patient is able to get treatment with us, then our scheduler takes over and sets up that plan. But if the patient is here just for the consult and will be going back to their physician, then by that day's uh, end, I will make sure that a plan goes back to their treating physician, and then we have that open communication. And that communication is important because the patient gets access to us via a messaging portal or otherwise through a phone call, et cetera. And on an ongoing basis, we set up that treatment plan and walk with the patient. Uh, I should say that later on, I know we are short in time, but later on, after the patient has started their initial treatment, about a month or two months into it, they will meet with, for example, physical therapy, supportive care, palliative care, pain management, uh, et cetera, to try and take them through the rebuild phase after the drug has started working. Uh, Dr. Alawadi, thank you much. I know we would love to have more time with you, but I think the way that you just ended here and, and really laying out the patient experiences is, uh, is the way that, uh, that is going to be so helpful to our listeners. And I just want to say thank you again for joining us today on Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Thanks a lot. I appreciate your time. All right. And thank you. This is uh, Frankly Speaking About Cancer. And today's episode is brought to you in part by Sanofi Genzyme and Bluebird Bio. We'll be right back. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. 
Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaides, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community a global network of education and hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Ted Miller. We are going to continue our in-depth look at living with multiple myeloma. Joining us now is Jan Miller. Jan is a licensed professional counselor and founder of Mindful Living, offering mindfulness-based individual counseling and classes on stress reduction, self-compassion, mindful aging, mindful eating, and more. She's worked in various capacities for Gilda's Club Metro Detroit since 1999, and more recently for Gilda's Club Grand Rapids. In addition to providing mindfulness programming for Gilda's Club members, Jan facilitates support groups, including the Multiple Mile Group. And as a reminder to our listeners, we are proud that Gilda's Clubs are part of the cancer support community. Jan, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. Now, Jan, we just spoke earlier to Dr. Alawadi about um, asymptomatic myeloma. Um, and if this is patient's diagnosis, active surveillance is generally recommended. Active surveillance is also called from a patient's perspective, watch and wait and watchful waiting, or as patients sometimes call it, worry and wait. Um, how can pa- patients best manage the anxiety associated with uh, that type of uh, situation? Well, I think patients um, definitely feel that anxiety of watch and wait. Um, And one of the best ways um, for them to manage that anxiety is to really educate themselves about the available options. And, you know, often knowing that once the myeloma becomes active, that there are options and there are resources, you know, can can certainly be helpful in allevi- alleviating some of the anxiety. Um, as we 
usually um, can agree, knowledge is power. And what one of my support group members has said is the knowledge actually demystifies the diagnosis. Um, so in, in addition to educating oneself um, about the disease and about the treatment options, seeking emotional support. Um, you know, not holding the anxiety in because that anxiety, when it is held in, is going to surface, is going to manifest itself in other ways. And that could mean um, physical ailments, you know, emotional turmoil, relationship difficulties. So really reaching out, um, talking about um, this diagnosis and the, this anxiety of watch and wait, whether it's through support groups um, like the cancer support community groups and Gilda's clubs, um, whether it's with significant others, family, friends, um, or you know a faith community, whatever really resonates for each person um, can be so helpful. So when, Jan, you spoke so eloquently about coping and then seeking support, I'm going to change up a little bit and talk about another unique, unique challenge that faces people diagnosed with multiple myeloma. And it's something we talked about earlier in this show is that it's now a chronic condition. And so people are frequently on treatment and off treatment and on treatment again. Just how do you help patients deal with that kind of just roller coaster ride of, a, of an experience? Well, being frequently on and off treatment is a very difficult ride, no question. Um, and, you know, the uh, response is usually it's great to be off treatment, yet knowing that a return to treatment is inevitable pretty much dulls the shine of um, the relief of being off for a time. So, you know, the the recommendation that, um, I try to live by is acknowledging that this resulting anxiety is hard. This is tough stuff. Um, and I, I am a mindfulness teacher um, and practitioner. And mindfulness and self-compassion really help in these kinds of circumstances because they really allow and even encourage this anxiety to be experienced, to be truly felt and acknowledged. And at the same time, mindfulness and self-compassion kind of anchor the mind in the present moment. So that period of time when you're off treatment and feeling, um, uh, so to speak, normal, um, it can really be savored. Uh, so, yeah, I, I really encourage mindfulness and self-compassion. Well, Jan, you said a phrase there that really caught my attention, anchor the mind. That's a pretty fascinating way to sort of put this into context. So I'm going to ask you about how does one anchor the mind when you start talking about long-term survivorship, which is a fortunate benefit of having increases in treatment, but there is a lot, you know, the long-term survivorship. And so how does... How would you recommend a patient anchor his or her mind when going through long-term uh, survivorship? Well, of course, um, the impact of long-term survivorship is, um, in my experience, twofold. It, it certainly provides hope, and it provides hope for um, the diagnosed individual as well as for others, especially newly diagnosed patients. Um, they love to hear 
23 years survivors, you know, even um, more than that. I've met a woman who is a 27 year survivor. So the feeling that that can impart um, to other patients is remarkable, not to mention uh, caregivers. So, um, you know, I think that that hope um, for long-term survivors of surviving long enough to see a cure is so important and impactful. And I think um, survivorship in the long term also, it fosters a gratitude. And, you know, this, I think, is part of that anchoring the mind, um, the Gratitude for the the life-giving treatments that already exist and that are being developed through research. Um, Gratitude for all of those who have helped along the way, whether it be the medical team, um, the the support system, um, all of those amazing things. That can really help. Both hope and gratitude can help in that anchoring of the mind, really experiencing those things and embracing them. Um, I think, too, with long-term survivorship, um, people develop a different perspective on life. Um, Priorities change, you know, don't sweat the small stuff kind of thing. Um, And, of course, that occurs uh, with anyone who has been diagnosed, no matter how long their survivorship. But I think particularly with long-term survivors, that is, um, that's very evident um, and a very deeply felt um, experience for them. And it can be tiring and overwhelming to be a long-term survivor as well. Um, well. Go ahead. No, no, Jan, well, all that you're saying makes so much sense. And it's just, I mean, first of all, I want to say, I know that why people turn to you in terms of going to support groups. You just provide uh, such an inspiring and and, uh, and warm kind of connection to people. So I, I'm glad that people ha- uh, have the access that they do uh, to, to your, your services and support groups. And one of the things I know that you, because you're a part of the Gildas Club and the cancer support community, you're familiar with the research that we do with patients. That's unique in terms of talking about their experiences. And, and we talk about, you know, anchoring the mind and how people are, you know, dealing 10 years, 20 years, you mentioned 27 years. But, you know, one of the things that our uh, research participants tell us is that they face a challenge when they don't look sick, yet they feel sick, which causes additional anxiety. Is this, can you, have you ever had to come across a patient or someone in your support groups who uh, sort of has had, had that kind of experience? And what, what kind of advice or um, guidance would you provide that person? Oh, my, yes. I have had that experience of um, people say I don't look sick and I don't feel good. Um, definitely. I've, I've heard that quite a bit over the years. Um, one of the members of my multiple myeloma support group actually said the biggest mistake that she made after her stem cell transplant was getting dressed because it looked as if she had recovered. You know, here she was, she was dressed, she was raring to go, you know, back into her her full life. And despite looking that way, she didn't feel that way at all. So, um, you know, I think that some um, understanding of, of where people might be coming from in their 
um, understanding of looking great and not feeling well is people want patience. They want their loved ones to return to, to the way that they were, you know, to get better so that, so they jump on any signs, you know, like getting dressed, um, that, that that person has recovered is doing a lot better. So they want to believe, um, that they look great. They look, you know, fantastic. And these folks really mean well. So, um, what what I say to patients is, you know, choose your battles. Do you want to say thank you to them and just acknowledge that they think you look great? Or do you want to dispute the remark? Do you want to say, yeah, I may look okay, but I don't feel okay? It's their choice. Um, so, yeah, pick your battles. Pick your battles. and and, and Jan, we just have about a minute or so before we have to take our first break, but I, you know, we could talk for, for a long time, but we did, when you're describing that, we're under such pressure now when people get diagnosed or go through treatment, as you said, that people in their lives want them to return to normal. Um, do, I mean, let's talk a little just specifically about social media, those Instagram moments. Do you have, did you advise people to say, hey, what kind, should they be sharing? If anything, if they choose to share um, you know, should they, they match that? Should they match their experience with what they're feeling? Because there's so much fear that, you know, we get on social media in particular, people go on Instagram and share this story about I'm ready to climb every mountain, even though they may not feel that way. So is there a way to kind of tell people, Hey, maybe, maybe take a break or take a pause before you kind of share that experience? Mm-hmm. Sure. Absolutely. You know, once again, it goes back to really being true to yourself. What do you really want the world to see what do you want your story to be out there in the world um and some people find it very healing to present a story of strength and healing and that sort of thing um if so go for it um however if if you want people to recognize um the the challenge that you're experiencing be open about that that's okay or take a pause as you said ted Speaking of causes, what a great segue, Jan. You're a natural because we're going to take a quick commercial break and continue our conversation with Jan Miller when we get to the other side. As a reminder, this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Bristol-Myers-Squibb, Carofarm Therapeutics, and Takeda. We'll be right back with more after the break. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at CancerSupportCommunity.org. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, 
how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Ted Miller. Today, we're talking about managing the physical, emotional, and practical impacts of being diagnosed with multiple myeloma. With me is Jan Miller, a licensed professional counselor counselor, and founder of Mindful Living. Uh, she has worked in various capacities for Gilda's Club Metro Detroit since 1999 and more recently for Gilda's Club Grand Rapids. So uh, Jan facilitates the Multiple Myeloma Support Group, and she's graciously agreed to share her experiences with us. And so, Jan, we were talking earlier about social media. We ended about ended that about people being true to themselves. I am almost going to bet that uh, you've had some patients come to you and that after they have gone to Dr. Google uh, and when they've re- received a diagnosis like multiple myeloma. Um, let's just agree that perhaps that's not the best place to start. So what uh, should patients and caregivers or where should patients and caregivers go to learn more about multiple myeloma in your, in your experience? Well, I certainly agree, Ted, that um, Dr. Google is not the best place to go always. There can be good information um, online. However, reliable sources um, and sometimes the um, best way to find reliable sources is to ask the medical team um, who they would recommend. Of course, um, Cancer Support Community, you know, their um, website has um, a lot of information and really can direct people to other reliable sources. Also, the International Myeloma Foundation, the Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, um, all of those organizations have informational specialists and help desks, you know, who can answer questions and really help steer patients to the best information that they can get about their diagnosis. Um, And I I mentioned um, asking the medical team, in in addition to that, um, a social worker at the treatment center or the hospital um, will have some great resources as well. So, you know, once you've really found those reliable sources and gathered um, information that that is true and that's relevant, then, um, you know, maybe explore um, 
other options online, online support groups, that sort of thing, with caution, with really serious caution. Um, Because the worst thing, I think, for people to hear is something that's untrue, that is very distressing to them. Well, Lucien, you mentioned about sort of skepticism and people can kind of go to a lot of places for a variety of sources. So thank you for listing out all of those resources, because I think our listeners, especially those who may be experiencing a diagnosis or being a caregiver or a close friend of someone who's going through this, uh, will really uh, sense some empowerment from having the the list of groups that you listed. Uh, We we talked earlier in this segment about another area that that, uh, invokes some skepticism on the part of the public. We talked to to, uh, Dr. Iowati about uh, clinical trials. And, you know, this is such an important topic. We're hearing so much about it in the context of the pandemic and, and the vaccines. But uh, he, he spoke specifically about how clinical trials have, are, include underrepresented communities and that there are just not as many people. People are not willing to participate in the, in the trials and they're underrepresented, and some especially among communities of color. Uh, I wanted to know, what do you tell patients about clinical trials and you know, and the treatment options. What are some of the, the resources that you provide to them? Or what's the, how do you sort of start that conversation to see if you can, you know, tell, the, you know, address some of their skepticism? Mm-hmm. Well, clinical trials um, certainly have been key in advancing the treatments for multiple myeloma. And, you know, really advances in treatment for all blood cancers have depended on clinical trials of new therapies or new therapy combinations. Um, I um, haven't mentioned that my husband also has multiple myeloma. Mm. And, um, yeah, the irony of it, working for Gildas Club and being – and actually, I also worked for a time with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society – And um, knowing more than I ever wanted to know about multiple myeloma, and then my husband is diagnosed with it. Um, He is currently in a clinical trial, and um, I've seen the tremendous benefits and read through all of the paperwork that he has received what the the benefits are. But what I I typically... um, Tell folks who are considering patient or excuse me, uh, considering clinical trials is that this is how advances are made um, in treatments and patients who are enrolled in cancer clinical trials are never treated as guinea pigs. Um, You know, that's something that I do hear quite a bit. I don't want to be, you know, a test case, a guinea pig. So, you know, the facts are that patients are, um, are given in a clinical trial, either the best treatment currently available or a new and a possibly more effective therapy. Um, The, The other thing um, that is a huge benefit of being in a clinical trial, and I've seen this with my husband, is that patients get a lot of attention and they receive excellent cancer care. Um, He is um, uh, at the treatment center once a week. His his blood work is um, being looked at once a week and, you know, just constantly being monitored. So... um, Really, it's it's phenomenal what um, 
attention you do receive while in a, a clinical trial. And also the trial can be changed or stopped if the researchers discover that there's a problem. And patients who take part in a clinical trial have the option to leave the trial at any time. Um, and you're never going to get a placebo if you're in a clinical trial. You're never going to get that sugar pill that some people are afraid of. Um, it, they're never used in place of a proven effective therapy. Not at all. Jan, well, I, I want to, first of all, say thank you for offering that personal story. We, um, our heart goes out to you and your family and your husband especially. I know that you know, just in describing the treatment, um, it, you just described so much of how when a, what a diagnosis can do to be disruptive, right? Even though like someone like you has an expertise in so many areas. One of the questions, I just want to focus on one that we get from a lot of patients, and that's just kind of um, on the financial cost, the cost of care, some of the, what we call financial toxicity. And I know we just had a, a, a minute or so before, before our segment ends, but if you can sort of talk to um, just, you know, what is it like to, what, what advice and guidance do you give to folks who are just concerned about, in addition to the emotional uh, con- consequences of, of cancer diagnosis, these other things, disruption, financial co- coping, those kinds of things? Mm-hmm. Well, cancer care is expensive. There's no question. And I think multiple myeloma um, treatments are some of the most expensive. The, um, there is help. And um, asking for help is critical. Asking the social worker at the treatment center or the hospital, they have resources and they can help fill out paperwork, um, you know, really walk you through the process of getting financial assistance. Any of the organizations that I mentioned earlier, um, the International Myeloma Foundation, Myeloma Research Foundation, Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, they offer financial assistance. Um, So exploring what the um, requirements are for that assistance. Also, pharmaceutical companies offer Mm -hmm. financial assistance. So, um, you know, there, there is certainly nothing shameful about asking for help. You know, when you're talking about one or two pills being $14,000, um, that, that is a valid reason to ask for financial help. Yeah. So, yep, speak well, up. Well, Jan, that's a perfect way to end our segment today when you talk, ask people to speak up. And thank you so much for being a part of Gilda's Club and the Cancer Support uh, Community Family. I think that you've just shown our listeners the kind of expertise and, and uh, uh, emotional support people can depend on when they come to us. And I just want to uh, end, frankly, speaking about cancer today by reminding our listeners how they can find out about our programs and information. First, you can visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org or call us at 888-793-9355. And you can talk to a licensed professional about your specific questions. Thank you for joining us today. We look forward to having you back on our next episode. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org.